Welcome to ArcNext Sessions, episode 97. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Donna and Ken. Today, we're joined by documentary filmmaker Morgan Neville. A few of Morgan's recent projects include 20 Feet from Stardom, an Academy Award-winning documentary about backup singers, The Music of Strangers, Yo-Yo Ma and the Silk Road Ensemble, Crossfire Hurricane, a historical documentary on the Rolling Stones, The Cool School, a film looking at the art scene in 1960s LA, and many, many others. It's his most recently released project, however, that's given us an excuse to invite him to join us here in the studio to talk to us. The project is a new documentary series called Abstract and has just launched on Netflix last week. Each of the eight episodes looks at the lives and careers of design leaders from various disciplines. The subjects include Christoph Neiman, Paula Scher, Platon, Tinker Hatfield, Ilsa Crawford, Ralph Scheel, S. Devlin, and Bjarke Ingels. Morgan, thanks so much for joining us today. Sure. So maybe we can start out with you telling us a little bit about Abstract. How was the series conceived? So I have to give full props to my fellow executive producer, Scott Dadich. So it was really Scott's baby. Scott, for the past, I don't know, five years, has been the editor-in-chief of Wired magazine. But Scott came up as a designer who became editor-in-chief of Wired, which is kind of an amazing story. But he worked hard to bring design thinking into Wired and even started a conference a few years ago called Wired by Design. And I think he had such a great experience with that. He said, we should make this into a TV show. And I met Scott. We started talking. Netflix got interested in it. And I was salivating over this idea, the idea of making a show about people that I would love to learn about and worlds I'd love to learn about so, and people that inspired me. And this is a new kind of format for you, right? I mean, have you done a series like this before? No, I haven't. I've done things a little bit like this and I'm doing more things like this, but this is kind of this golden age of documentary film and documentary TV. So the idea that there's somebody paying to do high-end documentaries about artists and designers, like that just has never happened in the history of mankind before. Yeah. You know, we're kind of in this interesting moment where there are all these people now really realizing the value of doing nonfiction storytelling. And it's just been really fun and allowed me to stretch different muscles. And I think one thing we decided to do with the show from the beginning was to really take chances with it and experiment with it and make it something that was not going to be a boring coffee table book but something that was a lot more engaging. What do you think it is that has kind of opened up this new type of filmmaking to the world? Like you were saying that something like this just wouldn't have ever happened a few years ago, but now... Well, I think there are a few things. I mean, one, and I could talk about documentaries all day that are not here to talk about that, but I think one is documentary filmmaking's become much, much better. And part of that has to do with the tools of it. Part of it just has to do with the thinking about it. And it's exciting. And now the barrier to entry is very low. You can shoot on your phone. You can edit on your laptop. And so they're just exciting things happening. You know, when I started, documentary was like the spinach of filmmaking. You know, nobody really <laughs> cared about it. But also, I think the access to nonfiction storytelling has changed. So I have to give props to Netflix and uh, iTunes and a few other places that basically put documentaries on the same par with feature films. And if you could click here to watch a documentary or click here to watch a feature, a lot of people choose to watch documentaries. And that just wasn't true. The thing I heard forever before was, I love documentaries. I just don't know where to find them. And mm. we've kind of solved that problem, which is great. So, so to me, you know, it, it really is this kind of golden age where people are taking chances. I just got back from Sundance. And the films were exciting and the documentaries were blowing up and people were spending the kind of money that was unheard of in the documentary world even four years ago. And you've been a 
documentarian your whole filmmaking career? Is that always yeah. been your focus? Yeah, I started as a journalist for a few years and had an idea to make a documentary, my first documentary about L.A. history. And uh, I thought it was going to take me three months and it took me three and a half years. And, and I kind of never looked back from can, that. Is that, can we find that somewhere? Sure, sure. It's, it has, you know, Margaret Crawford's actually in that. That's uh, the, the architectural historian. Yeah. Mike Davis is in it. And this was right around the time Mike wrote City of Courts, James O'Reilly, Buck Henry, a number of other interesting Los Angeles characters. And it was my idea to make a film about L.A. history because I grew up a kid in Southern California, an L.A. kid who went back east to go to school. And when I talked about L.A. history, people would laugh at me and think it was a punchline. <laughs> so I was determined to prove that L.A. does have history. And and I've subsequently made a number of documentaries about L.A. history, including The Cool School, which you mentioned, which is about the Ferris Gallery, the first modern art gallery in L.A., which is where, you know, Ed Keenholz, Ed Ruscha, Robert Irwin, and even people like Andy Warhol actually emerged out of that gallery. Their first shows ever were... We're right on La Cienega in Los Angeles. What was the name of the the film that you that you made that took uh, three and a half years that you just mentioned? I oh, my it. first documentary is called Shotgun Freeway. Shotgun Freeway. Drives okay. through Lost L.A. <laughs> where, where can we, where can we find uh, it? It's, it's out there. I it's mean, I think Netflix. it's um, it's not streaming on Netflix, the DVDs, uh -huh. so people still do that. And I think, honestly, it's probably all over YouTube at this point. So I don't okay. think it's that hard to find. Morgan, did you have a chance to speak with Robert Irwin? I did. I did. I, I spent a number of days with him. I went down to film with him in San Diego, and then I did a reunion. And then, you know, subsequently rolling out the film, he was a great help, too. And that whole group of guys, you know, if you know that crowd, those were the artists that came out of the Venice scene who were all kind of surfer alpha males who were also artists. Car guys. Yeah, car guys, <laughs> you know, Craig Kaufman, Kenny Price, Billy L. Bankston, you know, all those artists. And I just loved that scene. And to me, it was one of those untold stories. I mean, now people know about it. But at the time, I remember seeing Walter Hopps, who really was the original founding curator and the guy that kind of made the scene happen. And I saw him speak 15 years ago and was just blown away by it. And I went home and said, I want to watch the documentary about this. And realized nobody had ever made a documentary, nobody had ever written a book about it. And then it dawned on me that I, I had to do that. It was up to me to do that. And so that was, uh, yeah, I spent a few years making that film, but that was a great experience. So Morgan, you, you mentioned a few minutes ago that documentaries are really like really popular right now. And you made this documentary of these people who at the time were living a kind of kind of outrageous life, right? Ken Price, these guys. Do you think that people these days currently are just living more visual lives in a way that is easier to make documentaries of than yes. people used to? <laughs> I know. I can answer that now. Because looking at the, the two abstracts I have seen, these are both people that, which was the Bjarke one and the Ez Devlin, which was amazing. These are people who live these lives just surrounded by beautiful spaces and they do drawing all the time and they are very stylish. And, you know, I just wonder if people are just sort of living more curated lives these days in that way. To some extent, though, I would say if I was back in 1960 in Venice Beach, California, hanging out with these surfers mm -hmm. and driving cars and hanging out at Barney's Beanery and everything else they did, it would have been incredibly visual. However, nobody except for a couple of people like Dennis Hopper had a still camera. Uh, William right. Claxton had, you know, the couple of photographers taking pictures on the scene. But lives were just less documented. So for me as a storyteller, you know, I've made a film about Hank Williams once. There are only nine minutes of known footage to exist of Hank Williams. So, right. And I've made documentaries about bands like the Rolling Stones where there are, you know, 
thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of footage. But I think we're all living in a more observed, mediated world where there's no shortage of documentation of our lives now. Uh, and that, that's both a good thing and a bad thing on all kinds of levels. So so I wanted to also point, and I hope I'm not interrupting either Ken or Paul. I know we all have a lot to ask you about. I have been a fan for several years now of 20 Feet from Stardom. It's just such a beautiful movie that that you made. And it's about backup vocalists, basically. And those are the people, mostly women, and the, the film mostly features women, who are, they're back there doing the work, right? They're, they're not like gaining the accolades and the the spotlight, the attention, but they're back there doing the work, the interesting and hard work of making the the performance sound good. And I wanted to know about your your interest in work, in watching how people actually work as opposed to doing something like, yeah, being the star or or performing in some way, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it, I find that fascinating. I mean, not I made that film, I before that I'd made a number of films about songwriters and producers and you know, I've made a lot of music films, but the idea of the, the act of creation has always been really fascinating to me. And um, once you get to the point where you're making films about rock stars and they're standing on a stage doing the same show every night, that's not interesting. Those stories all tend to become the same, a variation on the same story. You know, what is exciting to me are those things where you're surprised. I mean, 20 Feet from Stardom was a film that completely surprised me just because I, again, Somebody had suggested, my producer had suggested to me that there was something interesting about backup singers. And I said, what? And he said, I have no idea. You have to figure that out. <laughs> and same thing. I went home. I Googled, you know, nobody had done a film about them. Nobody had written a book about them. I was like, OK, it's up to me again. you know. And I went out in the beginning and I interviewed 80 backup singers and did oral histories just to figure out what the hell the whole world was about. And I did that over three months and I came out of that and I said, okay, now I know how this whole world works and it's amazing and nobody's ever told this story. And so that that was exciting to me in part because these are people who are doing incredibly creative work that is already in our lives, in our ears and our minds. And we have no idea who they are. You know, if I'm going to draw a parallel with abstract, you know, design not to oversimplify it, but it's people that create the world we live in, who in most every case, we have no idea who they are. And again, it's that paradigm shift that I love. You know, so many people came up to me after 20 feet from stardom and said, I listen to music differently now. I hear backup vocals everywhere. And I said that same thing happened to me working on the film. And I hope a little of that happens with abstract that the more people start to actually think about design and think about somebody designed that concert and somebody designed these shoes and somebody designed this car that you at least have an appreciation for all the thought that goes into everything we live with. You know, it's funny, Morgan, um, when a lethal weapon first came out, I was watching it with my mom and my mom goes, you know who that is? And I go, no. And she goes, that's darling love. And I said, yeah. And she goes, well, darling love is, is not just a, an actress. She's, she's an incredible singer. And, uh, so to see her get to be known for more than just being in a, in a, uh, a lethal weapon film <laughs> and see her come and have a resurgence. And, and I don't know if she had a resurgence in her career, but certainly yeah, she did. No, I mean, I know every woman in the film has had a huge resurgence or, uh, you know, just a huge, it's changed everybody's life, which is something that you really don't expect to happen, you know. When I showed up with a camera in the beginning to do these interviews and and over the years of making that film, you know, nobody was thinking, oh, this is going to change all of our lives and we're going to win an Oscar and everything else that happened. You're just out there kind of 
trying to tell stories. And that film blew up in a way. There's a moment that crystallized it for me that actually happened at the Minneapolis Film Festival early on. Yay, Minneapolis. Yep, go Minneapolis. And we were screening (laughs) 20 feet. It was one of the first festivals we'd been to. And um, a guy stood up after the movie and said, I've been a uh, computer programmer, a software engineer, and I'm a middle manager at a large company. I have a great team of people I work with, but I don't get all the credit in the world. I don't get all the money in the world, but I have great pride in our work. And I realized today that I'm a backup singer. And they were all backup singers <laughs> and the whole crowd started applauding. <laughs> and it was just one of those moments where we said, yeah, well, most people aren't rock stars. In all of our careers, we're all dealing with these same issues of how you just do the work, the craft, the inspiration when you can afford it. And we're living in that middle area, including me as a filmmaker, very much so. And again, talking about design, you know, I feel like at one point I said, you know, art design is really just art with clients <laughs> that that really designers are artists at heart, but they have to deal with real issues of schedule, budget, function. And I feel like me as a filmmaker, it's very much the same thing, you know, that I people give me money to make movies and I've got an audience. I've got an end user I need to speak to and have them understand whether the story I'm trying to tell. So I feel like in a way making a TV series about designers was very much making a a TV series about filmmaking. For me, it actually was really kind of oddly personal and really enjoyable in that way. You know, what was interesting, your style is, is, uh, I'm intrigued by the way you handled the documentary. You're really kind of not generally not present in the piece with, uh, Bjarka or even Elsa, um, that I, that I watched your, your voice isn't really heard. And I was curious when you're watching them work with other team members and and because the, the Bjarka piece centers around the serpentine gallery competition and and uh win and construction and i was curious how you thought about when they were talking about the ideas for that and, and it really got a sense of these as a as a as a as an architect that the very strong hand and strong opinion of uh Bjarka when he's sitting at the table talking with the other um staff in his office about the project. I got a sense that there was a reticence on their part to really kind of interject or kind of bring forth their ideas. And I was just curious, how did you, how did you feel or how did you observe that moment when you're um, in hindsight or even at at the time it's happening? What were your thoughts about how process works in the architecture discipline? Well, I mean, Bjarke is on one extreme where, you know, he's got, I don't know how many employees he's up to now, but over 500 with major offices. And he's, you know, when you're an architect at that level, just like if you're anything at that level, you get more and more removed from the daily machinations of things and the real design detail. I even have dealt with that as a filmmaker. You know, it's hard to do all the research yourself and do all the drafting yourself when you're just too busy. And Bjarke's certainly busy. So in terms of his team, he's, you know, I, I've spent a bunch of time with many of his team members. And, you know, I think he's kind of in that position where he comes up with a couple of guiding principles, maybe some specific ideas, which he did in the Serpentine Gallery. He had a couple of specific ideas about what he wanted to do with it. And then he kind of hands it off and they come back. I wouldn't say they feel reticent to express their point of view but it's certainly not, they're not peers you know, that you see in that way that, you know, it's, it's his word is definitely the word. And I think part of it is that when they have him in a meeting like that, that's not something that happens every day. They get a meeting like that with him once a month to do a project like that. 
So it really is kind of what does he have to say? Let's get everything we can out of this meeting. And then, you know, we can debate it and argue about it in our own time. But, you know, let's try and get uh, download his brain as much as we can. And so, I mean, just for people who haven't seen the episode, the, the Part of one thing we wanted to do with the series in the beginning was be able to show design process and different designers and uh, different fields have different iteration times. So if you're making food or making a shirt or making any number of things, that can happen relatively quickly. If you're making a building, it usually happens incredibly slowly. So we got really lucky that when we started filming the episode, BRK was awarded the Serpentine Gallery pavilion in Hyde Park in, in London, which had to be completed in six months. So we actually were able to film an idea to an, a complete a building in six months, That's which just a coincidence. And that was a coincidence. Wow. Yeah. I mean, we heard that he was one of the final people being considered for Serpentine. And this is right when we were beginning the episode. He's the final architect to be considered for anything that's happening these days. Yeah. It seems, like. <laughs> it seems to be that way. And, um, and so we knew that was going to come down. So the first shoot we did for the entire series was the first interview day with Bjarke, where we talked about the possibility he was going to get this. And then one of the last shoots we did for the entire series was the completed building in London. So we really had to stretch out our shoot days, you know, literally from the very beginning of the series to the very end of the series to get that that whole process. And we were just, we were lucky that way because... You know, many of his buildings, you know, any large scale building like that could easily take five years. So was Bjarka as a person selected from the beginning as one of the subjects in the series? Or were you thinking we're going to focus on an architect and now we have to pick an architect? He was. And I'll tell you why, which is Scott Dadich at Wired had done a long Andrew Rice had done a long piece of Wired cover, cover piece, a cover piece. Yeah. And Scott knew Bjarke and knew his work and had talked to Bjarke about it, who was on board from the beginning. So by the time I came on, Bjarke was already kind of committed to do it. And we talked about doing other architects. We talked to a few. It became one of these, one of the hardest parts about doing the show was trying to come up with a balance of subjects that represented different fields, that also represented different, you know, gender, geography, ethnicity. You know, there were so many different boxes we were trying to check to kind of come up with a broad scope of designers for for one season. I'm pretty sure if we keep doing the show that we're going to have one architect in every season because they're kind of doing design on the biggest scale there is. It's kind of what, you know, maybe you could talk about urban planners, but architects really have that that design hand in projects that are greater on scale than anything else in the process. And I, I think they're doing incredibly exciting things. And I'm not going to name names, but we, we've talked to a couple of our other architects that if we do a season two, that uh, we'd be excited about. How did you begin your research into Bjarka and his work? How did that start? And what was what was your process in learning about him and deciding how to approach this documentary? Yeah, I mean, I read a lot. You know, I read Yes is More. I read many of the millions of profiles written about him. And, uh, you know, just trying to kind of get up to speed. Like I said, we ended up shooting the, my first shoot with him was, you know, one of the first things right when the job was coming together. So I kind of got thrown into it with him and we just started talking. And I think that was really informative too, that it just became a kind of a casual exchange of ideas. Though, I, you know, I kept doing homework throughout. And I think one of the ideas I came up with in the beginning was to try and, you know, he hasn't built that much. He's building a lot. 
but his completed buildings, you know, a year ago, I think was, you know, a dozen, you know, a very short list of real completed buildings. So I think the idea was, let's try and tour the buildings and see how the buildings themselves form a narrative because one building, the, you know, the lessons, uh, good and bad that come out of one building and form the next building. And so in a way, it's his story, but it's the story of how his ideas developed from one building to the next. And again, we were doing this on a short production schedule. I didn't, I wasn't shooting for months and months, you know, and shooting in Copenhagen and all over. We had to be very targeted about it. And, um, and then you never really know what you're going to get till you get there. You know, I didn't know what, you know, I ended up interviewing his parents who were great. <laughs> just That's, that's something that, uh, I, um, Donna and I, I were talking all about of us that. Were interested. Me too. Yeah. We were, we, we all found that very, uh, intriguing. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that decision to include his parents. In the- yeah. I mean, just to, you know, be blunt about it. I mean, you guys know, because I use a snippet of this podcast in the episode, <laughs> which I have to say, doesn't necessarily <laughs> represent our opinions on BRK. We do, we do, we are, I think we could consider the three of us to be all, uh, big, big fairly big, uh, big cheerleaders, big, big fans. But yeah, I, I think the, the episode that you, that you cut, we were listing out some of the nasty comments from our, from our listeners. But I think in the world of architecture, just in any creative world, the more successful you become, the more the more critics you you receive, the more criticism you get. So absolutely, and I, you know, I I get it, and he gets it. He knows because you know he sees the bad press, and he gets great press, but he gets a lot of press. But I think it was important for me to talk about that because you know, my going in, there is this sense of is this guy just a showman who's great at coming up with um, pithy phrases like like hedonistic sustainability and things like this. Like, does this actually mean anything? And I kind of went into the episode asking myself those questions. And I have to say, I came out a believer. You know, yes, he has he outsources a lot of his stuff to a team of incredibly talented people he has working for him. And yes, he probably spends more of his time being a salesman than being a designer. But I found him genuinely engaged in what he was trying to do with architecture. And I thought his ideas about where it should go were, were incredibly well thought out, even though they may, he he sums them up in a way that makes them almost sound superficial. But I think when you actually get into them and see how he's actually putting these things into practice, he's not just a paper architect. He's actually doing these things and standing on the top of Copen Hill, the, the clean energy power plant in Copenhagen with a ski slope on the roof. It is science fiction. And it was incredibly impressive. Yeah, I think he really does kind of capture that unique combination of creative, visionary, kind of science fiction-like perspective on architecture, but also with with his amazing sales and, and, and marketing ability. I mean, just in that first big housing project that's in, in the piece, how the developers spoke about how convincing Bjarke was, how he sold himself so quickly to him. He, he immediately yeah. fell yeah. in love with him. I think that's, uh, you know, that's part of the reason. But the, but the fact that he's able to pull this off and create great ar- architecture is, you know, it's proof that, that he's not a fraud. Well, yeah, it's interesting because you need good ideas, but there are a lot of people with great ideas who don't have that other part about them, who can't get those commissions to do that kind of work. And so as somebody who's out there trying to raise money to make movies all the time, you know, I appreciate somebody that can articulate a vision of what they want to do and then get people to give them money to build things to demonstrate that vision. I mean, that is a skill that I'm not going to critique. You know, I think it's valuable. And I think there are a lot of people that have the showman skill that don't have the ideas behind them that are just charlatans. 
Absolutely. <laughs> and I think what drives people nuts, and I'll get to what, um, what something in the in the uh, in the piece that I thought was kind of indicative of what drives people a little nutty. But what I find uh, about him that I do like is that his youth, his aspiration, and his his really forward thinking it comes off as more authentic through this piece than I think other people would have uh, would would believe when they look at just his work and and they hear the anecdotes kind of. But he sells it in such a great way that um, I can't help but think that you know even in the failure he'll still find a positive about you know how this is going to come through. And he even acknowledges in the pieces that this was done very cheaply. So the criticism <laughs> that people are leveling against him, that his, his work is cheap developer work, which was the quote you, you cited, you highlighted in the Arconet criticism, he actually acknowledges that, yeah, this was pretty done pretty cheaply, but you know, there was a, there's a, there's a path forward here. But I wanted to get back to what I really, can I just say what I really loved about meeting his parents is that I had this kind of sense of, and it's a wrong sense, but I just kind of felt like, well, his parents are going to be these very angular people, very tall, very, very kind of polished and very um, modern. And they come across like a very human and very much like my parents, very middle class, <laughs> working class. And I kind of like was recoiling just a bit because I'm like, if I put my parents in front of the camera, they would embarrass me. And, but there's <laughs> what I found when I walked away from that was that here's a son who who, who his parents probably kind of like, you know, make, they bring out that photo. That photo is, is such a cheesy looking photo that they shared <laughs> it with him and that, you, that he let it go on. I mean, it's kind of like what my parents would do to me. They would bring out the photo of me with a bath towel wrapped around my head naked when I was like four years old. They would embarrass me in that way. But there's a, you can see that they trust, he trusts them and he loves them so much that he's, you know, it's, he's just showing this part of himself that I thought was pretty endearing. And it felt really kind of um, quite nice to see that. Well, and thanks for saying that. I mean, I think that that to me, you know, understanding that the baggage that comes with doing something about Bjarke, that understanding that where he came from and that he did have humble roots and meeting his parents, just just a way of humanizing him and making him more dimensional. And they were great. His mom's a dentist. You know, they're very they've lived in the same house he grew up in. You know, they've never moved. It's you know, they are very salt of the earth. And I think and very proud of him. And and w also what I found interesting was that he had wanted to do graphic novels and they were the ones that forced him into architecture because it seemed like a real career. And uh and that's and that's how he ended up going down that road. So I, who can't relate to that? You know, just parents like that. So Morgan, in the the episode on as Devlin, her parents were also in that episode and the sort of environment that she grew up in as a child. And so this moment with Bjarki, where he's talking about the lake that was at the edge of their his property growing up, I guess, as a child, and he says that in the summer the lake is an ending, and then in the winter it. When it freezes over, it becomes a, an access point to a new beginning sort of place. You seem to be delving back into what are sort of the, some of the childhood experiences and, and things that lead to people to produce creative work. So I wanted to ask you, sorry, I'm going to turn it back <laughs> on you. Like, what were some of your childhood experiences that then led you to doing filmmaking, but also documentary filmmaking? Because you said you started in journalism in college. Yeah, I, I did. And, you know, we're all products of our childhood you know, either directly or in direct response to our childhood. And yeah, so my father was an antiquarian book dealer and had a small book press. And I basically grew up traveling around going to bookstores. And our house was full of writers. We had writers and book dealers staying at our house, sometimes for months on end. So it was a little bit of a, 
you know, to call it a salon is pretentious, but there were a whole lot of writers <laughs> hanging out all the time. And Those, I loved to stay up late. You're in L.A.? In Santa Barbara. Oh, Santa Barbara. Yeah, there was kind of a weird, rare book scene happening in Santa Barbara at the time. And a lot of writers and people would come to our house, everybody from Charles Bukowski to Hunter Thompson to all kinds of mystery writers, all kinds of random people came through our house. And it was it was a scene. And I love that. And yeah, I think so much of what I'm interested in now was informed by by those things that I was into as a kid and that my parents were into basically books, movies, music. You know, when I first got into punk rock, said, Dad, have you ever heard of this punk rock thing? And he opened up his drawer and handed me the first Sex Pistols album, Patti Smith, The Velvet Underground. <laughs> He's like, here you go. You want to learn about punk rock? Here you go. You know, so, you know, definitely there was something about that. Um, all of that deeply influenced me. And um, yeah, and I'm still, I'm making films about things that my dad is still obsessed with. So yeah, it's good. So, so uh, a big body of your work is within the music industry. Mm -hmm. I and mean, you've covered so many musicians from uh, many different genres. How does the experience creating a documentary about a musician differ from creating a documentary about an architect or an art scene or any of the other subjects that you've covered? I mean, I, I've come to think of myself as a cultural filmmaker. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I've kind of made up that label. I don't know if it means anything. But to me, what it means is that, you know, I started my career in political journalism I started The Nation magazine. I'm obsessed with politics. But what I realized early on is I didn't like being a political journalist because so much of that is about telling people what to think or arguing with people or arguing with people you agree with. Um, and I just felt like what I always gravitated towards in my spare time was culture. So architecture, art, music, film, language, books, all those things were the things that I filled the rest of my life with. And so I kind of just had my first epiphany when I was 25 and decided to make a film that I didn't have to be doing hardcore political journalism to have a real career, that I could actually make films about art. And that actually is real too. And now I feel like I've really kind of become a champion for, for the power of culture. I mean, I just made this film with Yo-Yo Ma last year that's going to be on HBO in March called The Music of Strangers. And in a way, I feel like the journey he's been on is similar to mine, which is trying to figure out how you can use culture to understand the world and maybe change the world. And that culture is this force that's as powerful as everything else in the world, whether it's politics, religion, or economics. It's just harder to measure, which is why it gets discounted so often by everybody. But the culture is really kind of the key to understanding. And music became kind of my main way to tell those stories, in part because I'm a complete music geek. And I formed my first band when I was 12 years old. And, you know, it was something I was obsessed with. But it also, I kind of gained his reputation as a music documentarian. So I ended up getting a lot of work and kind of working in that field. But to me, doing films about designers or um, writers or artists or all these other things are all actually very similar to what I want to say with musicians. They're all speaking a similar cultural language and kind of asking the same questions that I'm interested in asking. So I feel like a lot of the questions we ask in this series are the same questions I ask with Yo-Yo Ma, which is how does this work affect how we perceive the world we're living in and how can our work improve both our understanding of the world, but maybe the lives of others as well. So, you know, that all sounds very hoity-toity, but 
you know, so what? You know, that's those are the kinds of stories that I find interesting. And you at least have to kind of aspire to that. And I find that this show was very inspiring. You know, seeing people doing great work, trying to make things better is something that I don't see in politics and I don't see in a lot of other places. <laughs> and if you can see it in in designers, you know, they're that's that's God's work then, said the atheist. <laughs> <laughs> said the atheist. <laughs> So you you come out of a period where the world was kind of feeling like um, you didn't have to pay attention to the day-to-day machinations of particular executive running the country. And you're able to kind of, you know, shine a light on things and culture and give people a different or a broader take on the world and, and seeing the world through uh, in a different way. And now you're moving into a period where we have your day to day is occupied with uh, whether or not, you know, we're going to be bombed by some other country or we're going to bomb some country or just the prospects of the world ending or like you know, seemingly day to day. Where do you go when now? I mean, when you're where culture is seen as um, not just alien, but uh, a threat to uh, American existence, given the proclivities of certain individuals running the country or voting for people. I mean, how do you maintain that aspirational or that hopeful quality in that regard? I mean, I, you're right. I mean, I think design is in and of itself an inherently optimistic discipline because you've got to believe in making things better. And I think we are certainly living in a world where we have a president that's a fear monger and, you know, doesn't really wants to scare people, not make people think things are going to get better. He wants to put us in a time machine and take us back to some mythical Andy Griffith show, Mayberry kind of land. And, you know, I experience Trump-induced malaise as much as many other people, but I have to, you know, I, I come back to what, you know, Christoph Neiman in the series quotes Chuck Close saying, inspiration is for amateurs, just do the work. And I think there is something about, you know, enough navel-gazing, enough depression, enough of everything. Just do the work that you think is going to make a difference. And that's all you can do. And that is empowering to me. I mean, the the film I'm working on right now is uh, I'm doing a documentary about Mr. Rogers. And Mr. Rogers, to me, is actually somebody who says more about how we should behave in our neighborhood and in our civilization in this day and age as much as anybody. I mean, that's a voice I think we need to hear. Absolutely. I'm so glad that you're doing that. I mean, he he was really an amazing person, I think. He was incredible. Uh, I mean, he always catered to a young child audience, but his message was so much more sophisticated than that. It was. I mean, it's part of what's been great about working on this film is just, yeah, realizing how much more there was beyond what you saw on TV, how much more thought and consideration went into everything. And that, in a day and age where we have president that tweets seemingly without thinking about anything, realizing that people that do make considered opinions and really try and do work about some, uh, you know, deep work about something. And that's something to be celebrated. So we will, we will see. But again, I can just, I tell these stories and, you know, it makes me feel better whether or not it makes a difference. I I don't know, but I got to try. Yeah. There was a, somebody, I saw a post today on Facebook where it was uh, some news piece about uh, Mr. Rogers going to Capitol Hill to argue for like saving PBS essentially. Yes. And actually staring down basically the federal government and demonstrating the value of, of this particular um, public asset. 
And I'm wondering who is that person today that's going to be able to fight that one? Well, it might be Mr. Beyonce. Rogers. No. The, <laughs> yeah. It might be Mr. Rogers. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the argument he made when he argued for PBS in 1969 in the Senate is the same argument we need today. And yeah, I feel like there are a lot of other people who can make that argument, but I think we have to keep making those arguments because it's so easy to take all of that stuff for granted. You know, it, there's serious discussion that we're there will be no NEA, NEH, or Corporation for Public Broadcasting a year from now, you know, and that should scare the bejesus out of all of us, you know, that those are there for a reason. They're not very expensive in the grand scope of things, and um, and they do important work for us to support our cultural life. And again, I, I feel like culture is constantly discounted because we can't measure it on test scores and we can't, it just can't, yeah, there's there's no metric for it. So, but, but the kinds of things that we get out of culture, and I could say this is about music, I could say it about architecture school, you know, the skills you learn, which are to be innovative, to be collaborative, to be, uh, yeah, imaginative, these are all skills we need from a workforce in the future. And there are things you get out of learning how to be a musician or an artist or a designer. They're not things you get out of most of the rest of you know, your classes in school. So people don't think these things matter. And I actually think those are exactly the skills we should be learning. So Morgan, uh, typically when we have guests on, we ask uh, one final question and I, I'm usually the one that asks it. Um, can we have your kidneys? No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> just one. <laughs> um, what book are you reading and, uh, what, what, uh, what are you listening to these days? Um, I was just reading, um, arguably the, a collection of Christopher Hitchens pieces that, you know, I love Hitchens. And again, one of those great original deep thinkers who was complicated and messy, but the kind that seem almost extinct in this day and age. And God, music. I've been listening to this guy named Andy Schuff, this Canadian singer-songwriter guy. Contemporary? Um, or, uh, contemporary. Uh -huh. I actually put one of his songs into one of the episodes of Abstract, and I think it seemed like the first time he had ever had a song in anything when we called him to ask. <laughs> do, um, do you remember what part it was in? Because I remember when I was watching it, I was thinking, I have to, I have to find out what song this is. No, it's is. in the Christoph Neiman episode. Oh, okay. So it's not in the PRK okay. episode. I will give a shout out, however, to our composer who did the music for the entire series was Mark Mothersbaugh from Devo. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, we, we uh, actually nice. featured him on our Connect back. Oh, yeah. Too. He, uh, he also... Oh, I know his a, art, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. He, he did a, a, a line of rugs. Really? Yeah. Uh, so we featured his rugs with a little... I didn't know. Him. I want to... He's a very Mark talented Mark Mothersbaugh guy. rug. Yeah. 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 But he's he's quite the musical. He genius. is. Yeah. He is a complete natural, pure natural musician, but an amazing artist too. Uh -huh. You know, that museum show that was in town and I have the book, Myopia and all that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's a fascinating guy, which is why I think he was excited about doing the music for our series, especially considering how little we were going to pay him. So thank you, Mark, <laughs> for that. <laughs> well, it's an adult series. Yeah. So I, he does a lot of children's stuff. Yeah, exactly. It? But he kills it. Well, thank you so much, Morgan, for, for joining us today and, uh, and talking about the series. Just a reminder to everybody out there, Abstract is on Netflix right now. So go and binge it all, all eight episodes. Or Absolutely. Online. And then on HBO next month, you've got the Yo-Yo Ma. March 6th, March 6th, Music of Strangers on HBO. Excellent. And the Yo-Yo Ma uh, film, is that available yet? 
It'll be on HBO Go once it airs, but that's oh, but just about a month from now. The Silk Road Ensemble. Oh, that's the same film. Yeah. Music of Strangers, oh. Yo-Yo Ma and the Silk Road Ensemble. Oh, okay. It's I a mouthful, just, I, I, but that's I, the whole uh, film. Okay, yeah. I mixed up the uh, the titles. Well, yeah. Thanks. Thanks again. And uh, it was it was a real pleasure. And thanks everybody out there listening. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, Arc Sessions, or with hashtag ArcNext Sessions. You can also send us an email to connect at ArcNect.com with feedback. And if you enjoy the podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. Talk to everybody next week.